Welcome, and thank you for joining us. This is the Seedfield Podcast, the show where Antiochians share their knowledge, tell their stories, and come together to win victories for humanity. I'm your host, Jasper Nighthawk, and today we're going to do something a little bit different. We've been planning out season two of the Seedfield Podcast, and we're very excited to share it with you. Our first interview of the season comes out next Wednesday. But for this first episode, we wanted to look back and remember some of the things we learned in our first season and reflect on these insights and the wisdom that our guests shared with us. To do this, our show's editor, Lauren Instanez, pulled together key clips from each episode for us to listen to. And to introduce these clips, Lauren is joining me here today. Hi, Lauren. Hey there, Jasper. So with each episode of our show last season, you were in the background engineering and then editing every episode. That was like a lot of work. And you also were really intimately familiar with these conversations by the time we posted them onto the internet. But I don't think that we ever had a chance to really slow down and look back through all of these things. So I was curious, what were some of the things that you found in re-listening to everything? Well, Jasper, I'm just so proud of this season. I think that it was so amazing how all of these guests gave their time to help us produce a really fun and informative season. I was impressed at the range of conversations that we had. They were so different. Each guest brought a very different set of knowledge and personality, but there were also some really great overarching themes that you can see weaved through all of these episodes. And All of the themes, I realize, really relate back to Antioch and Antioch's mission. There's social justice, activism, the importance of mental health, environmental justice. Those are some of the big ones that I saw, and I was really excited to kind of bring those out in this recap episode. Jasper, you hosted a lot of these episodes. What was interesting for you to look back at? Well, first, I just want to say thank you for drawing out those themes. It's really great to like look back and see that those really did come through over and over and over again. For me, revisiting these old episodes, I found that so many of the conversations were just as relevant today as they were the day that we recorded them. And I find for myself that I learn best oftentimes when I go back and go over knowledge that I've gained in the past. So I experienced that. And For our listeners, I want to encourage them, if you hear one of these clips that we're about to play and you think, man, I would love to hear that person talk for a whole 35 minutes, you can go always go back and listen to the whole episodes. We're going to link to them in our show notes. So with that, let's jump into the archives. One of the big questions that our nation, our university, and this show have been grappling with is the legacy of white supremacy and the way that it molds our society today. That's part of why we were so happy to have as our first guest the education reformer Stephen Brookfield. At the time that we interviewed him, he was just publishing his book, Becoming a White Anti-Racist, and he shared this definition of what it means to be anti-racist. 
anti-racist means to name whiteness as the problem of race, to focus on the way that this idea of white supremacy is embedded in institutional practices, in habits. That's why I drill down, not just to curriculum development, not just to mission statements, but to actual specific practices. How do we run our meetings? How do we ensure that considering racial dynamics is something that's linked to every agenda item? How do we rewrite performance appraisal for our annual performance appraisal so that an attention to understanding your racial identity and to challenging white supremacy becomes a major factor in, in a positive review? So when I'm I, I always trying to get across the idea, as many people are, that racism is not individual actions, individual expressions and behaviors. I mean, it is that, but really racism is a system that structurally advantages whites. And that means that if you're white, you don't have to face a lot of other things that people of color have to face. You don't have to think about that stuff. It's not in your worldview. I was really glad to see this idea of structural racism come up in many of our conversations this season, because it really does touch every part of our culture in America. I think the work that Cynthia Santos-Dietz and Kathy Lounsbury are doing to reform their mental health counseling program with a decolonized lens is really inspiring. And, you know, their episode was super insightful about how enormous, but also transformative an undertaking like this can be. It's like stepping outside the fishbowl that you're swimming in and really trying to look at uh, what is our field and recognizing that much of the field of counseling is really based upon these ideas of develop human development and human thriving that are very Eurocentric, created by white cisgender men. And I've been in the field for a long time, as I said, and the textbooks that I used when I was getting my master's degree that started with these same white men are still the textbooks that are used in our field today, as if before these men, nobody ever healed from from anything like that. This is the way to heal. So it's real this real erasure of any healing, any practices that took place prior to these white men. While this kind of work can definitely feel overwhelming, I think that Cynthia's advice at the end of the episode helps us to see it as a goal that everyone has the opportunity to contribute to. The most important thing is not to stay still. There is a lot of work to do. There is a lot, there is a space for everybody to do something. So you can find that space and that voice and use your own privilege and your own positionality to do something. Reckoning with race, class, and privilege is something that many of us have been doing over the last year. And because of that, it's been an important part of this show. At the same time, the last year has also been one of pandemic and isolation. Because of that, we were excited to delve into these questions at the show. And luckily, Antioch University, across all of its campuses, has a major focus on training mental health professionals 
from therapists and counselors to psychiatrists and health systems administrators. So across multiple conversations, we had the chance to hear about the mental health difficulties presented by the pandemic and also how it's presented opportunities for growth. Lauren, what were some of the conversations about mental health that stood out to you? You know, I really enjoyed the conversation that took place in our interview with Doug Weir and Lane Janger about taking therapy training sites online. This was our first two-person interview on the seat field, and it was exciting to see how across multiple different Antioch campuses, therapists were taking this challenge as an opportunity to expand their own knowledge and develop the skill of helping patients at a distance. Here is a clip from Doug and then a clip from Lane where they discuss the pandemic's unexpected upside in their field. Continuing education is an ongoing process that, that, of formal learning, you know, relevant to your, your practice or education and to enable you to kind of keep pace with the science and the interventions uh, and to allow us to the, increase our competence. So what a perfect place this for continuing education as uh, this presents all of a sudden. And I, I just want to add to that. It's like this training is so important, even if the pandemic didn't happen, because we've got the younger generations who are so used to communicating virtually. And I think sometimes they prefer it and are more likely to show up at therapy if they get if they get to do it virtually. So I think the training becomes extra important. This theme of reaching people where they are is so key. So I'm glad that you brought that out, Lauren. Something similar came up in my conversation about the effects of the pandemic on children's mental health. I was talking with Gina Pasquale, and she said something I thought really interesting about the importance of listening. Listening, um, but truly listening, like listening to understand, not just listening to listen, not listening to respond, but really listening to understand the perspective. And we don't have to rescue. We don't have to make things better because we can't in so many ways. Uh, but there's something profoundly healing and that accesses resiliency when we are really heard and understood. And so I think that's like if if I would want parents to do any one particular thing or, you know, folks who are spending time with kids to do any one particular thing, it would be really to give them voice not make promises you cannot keep, but to really just be there with them uh, to, hand, to help them with that isolation piece. I love that quote from Gina. And I really think that anybody who's interacting with kids right now should listen to her episode because it was really insightful. And just as a little teaser for our upcoming season, Gina is going to come back and join us again, but this time as a guest host. So keep a lookout for that episode. And while we're on the topic of kids and mental health, Another person who had some great insight into working with youth during the pandemic was Cynthia Ruffin. She's the director of Colors LGBTQ Youth Counseling, which is a free therapy clinic in Los Angeles. And she told us about how important listening is for those working to help kids whose very identities and sexualities make them targets for discrimination. Quite literally, as, as therapists, as teachers, as doctors, as nurses, Really, when we walk in to see our clients and our patients, we've got to walk in with those things checked out the door, our own internalized homophobia, our own implicit bias. And we've got to engage in work that affirms the identity of the people that we're working with. 
right? So we've got a young person who comes in, a young gay man comes in for therapy. We've got to be in a place where we can affirm him when he walks in because outside of the counseling room, he's got to deal with the oppressions of, you know, being a gay man all the time. So when he comes into the room with us, he's got to be able to have a place where he can sit and tell his story and walk through what his issues are and do so in a way that does not make him feel shamed, bad about who he is, beating on himself any more than he probably is already doing. He's got to be able to find a safe place where he can be affirmed. Another focus for us here at Antioch is teacher training, preparing the next generation of educators to impact the lives of their students in powerfully positive ways. One of the innovative educators we had the chance to speak with was Zoe Weil, founder of the Institute for Humane Education. She explained to us the way that humane education can form a foundational philosophy for educators across disciplines. Humane education can be perceived as something that is in addition to, and you were just talking about all those things that teachers have to add onto their already incredibly um, full plates. And so how can humane education not be perceived as yet another add-on, something more that teachers have to do? And the way that, that we perceive it as, is that humane education can infuse schools and infuse curricula so that regardless of what a teacher is required to teach, you know, whether they're a math teacher uh, of seventh graders or whether they are a high school history teacher, whatever it is that they were hired to teach, that these issues of social justice and sustainability and animal protection can actually be brought into the curriculum to enliven and enrich the curriculum so that students can learn about real world issues within whatever subjects they are required to study and that their teachers are required to teach. You know, Jasper, going into that conversation, I didn't know that humane education included all of those different elements and had such a focus on sustainability and animal protection, but that makes so much sense. I also love this idea that we can integrate these important lessons into everything that we study. It's so Antiochian. Yes, it really is Antiochian. And for me, I think part of what I love about the way that Zoe puts it there is that humane education puts care for the environment as part of the foundation for all educational work. I'm really passionate about this because in part of the climate emergency that just is growing more dire every year, I think environmental education is such an important field today. Here on the Seedfield podcast, we had the chance to talk with two experts in environmental education, Sue Byers and Libby McCann. I really appreciated what Libby and then Sue had to say about the importance of connecting environmental education to work around racial justice. I really believe in connectedness and right relation. And by that, I mean right relation with ourselves. So taking time to center ourselves and be aware of the world around us, right relation with others, our, our family, our friends, our broader community, being of service, and right relation with the world around us. I think the environmental movement has been remiss to have a 
I don't know, almost eco elitist privileged perspective on what constitutes the environment and it's all around us. And to take those moments to connect with the world around us and pay attention, I think is super important to our work. And then one that is just particularly to the climate change injustices and impacts that we're witnessing, we, we need to talk to people about climate and and climate injustices and change for the future and imagine different futures that are more just and equitable and recognize that we cannot have sacrifice zones. We cannot have sacrifice people. We have to circle back and connect to each other. No one should go sacrificed. I understand and heartily agree with that statement. The other thing is, so often, in um, advocates' zeal to support, sometimes we move in to fix things for people. And if there's another takeaway that our listeners will hear from this podcast today is, in our communities that are most impacted, there also are solutions that they have developed. There are also leaders within the community that what is needed is to come alongside and to support, not necessarily come in with preconceived notions. In other words, to honor that voice of those that have been most impacted and involve and engage them. Well, I really connected with what Sue said at the end there about the importance of not only listening to the people that are most impacted, but making their voices the driving force in any community activism taking place. Yes. And that sentiment that we should expand the circle of who gets listened to, I think it was echoed by another one of our guests, Jean Kayira, who directs our environmental studies PhD. Jean told us that listening to the voices of people who've often been excluded from environmental studies really is a key to finding new and more sustainable relationships with our world. We need to recognize that uh, one way of thinking is not going to make a difference. It has not, right? But also we need to expand our understanding of the word environment right? What are we talking about? What does that mean? In my view, environment is really about interconnectedness and interdependence of everything, whether it's animate and the more than human, right? Uh, So what does that mean? It means that no species is higher than the other. We operate in an ecosystem where everything is connected, where everything depends on each other. And that, that alone comes with the expectation, one would imagine, that we need to respect each other. We need to respect everything that makes us who we are. And that becomes with respect, but also mutual reciprocity between us as human beings, and everything that surrounds us. 
Antioch is an institution founded on the ideals of advancing social justice, building democracy, and winning victories for humanity. Under the leadership of our chancellor, Bill Groves, Antioch has kept affirming its commitment to these values and this tradition. That's why we were excited to have the chance to talk with Chancellor Groves about the connections he sees between higher education, democracy, and social justice. I believe that without democracy, you can't have social justice. That democracy is a precursor to social justice. And an informed electorate is a precursor to a democracy. So higher education's role has been to educate. It's also been to ensure that we are hearing voices that are beyond our own, that is an inclusive environment. Whenever I listen to this conversation with Chancellor Groves, it makes me smile because it's so refreshing to hear someone in that kind of leadership talk about what it means to actually live the values set forth by the university. I think a great example of this was in Chancellor Groves' story about how, in the days after George Floyd was murdered, he had to make decisions about the kind of letter he would send to the Antioch community. There were many institutions who did not speak at all to the murder of George Floyd. Not one word. There were other institutions that wrote letters, and I read them as I was writing mine, that were thoughts and prayers. But nothing about the social justice issues that led to it. And I decided I was going to write a very different letter. And I know that that letter really touched people in a very important way. I got so many responses to that letter from alumni and from students who needed to hear that their institution understood what systemic racism was and how it plays out yet today in today's society. It needs to be addressed in policing, in the way that we operate as communities. So that's my view on what the role, proper role of higher education is. Speak to your values. Do not hide from them. Uh, I don't support candidates and I don't support political parties, but I will speak to values. Thank you for sharing that clip with us, Lauren. I feel like that's a really great point. You know, it kind of reminds me of another episode where we got to explore these questions of leadership. The interview with Dr. Akhil Termitsi was one of those episodes where we had a guest host, so I didn't actually do the interview. But in listening back, I was really struck by his ideas around self-awareness and self-regulation. Training and development journey in the context of leadership begins with sort of that commitment to self-awareness and self-regulation. Sounds simple, but when we say self-awareness, it requires certain amount of investment encourage to learn about our blind spots, to identify some of our developmental opportunities. And then self-regulation at the same time uh, demands from us that as we put some of the ideas and the sort of commitments to change that we make in ourselves, in our teams, and in our social system, you know, we will stay with that commitment to sort of practice even if we make mistakes so again, those kinds of actions require a lot of courage on the individual's part. This commitment to making change for the better really is so powerful. And I, th I think that it's something that really united all of our guests on the Seedfield podcast last season. Lauren, you interviewed the historian Kirsten Grimstad. 
And I really liked how she offered that political change often starts with challenging the stories that we tell ourselves. She suggested that one place we can start is by interrogating our own histories and the histories of our workplaces, the histories of our communities, the history of our broader society. Yeah, Jasper, that whole conversation was so much fun, but that suggestion at the end for our listeners was so powerful. I think we need to take the example from the history workshop movement, which was very active in getting this engine going in Berlin and elsewhere. The history workshop movement took as its motto, and this is really important, dig where you are standing. The history movement in Germany took that motto as a guiding principle for each district, looking at, well, what was going on in my district under the Nazis? Who lived here and what happened to them? And finding those stories about your local locality, dig where you're standing, and you can go a long way just by following that principle of digging where you're standing. I think we need to be inspired by these examples of people who have made a difference by being unwilling to live with the status quo that is privileges some people and disadvantages other people. And for every person that depends on where they are, where, where are you standing? What is, the, what is the status quo? And how did it become the status quo? I thought this was such a great idea about starting wherever you are and questioning the status quo, and that just doing that could make a huge difference. Jasper, you had an extremely interesting conversation with our last guest this season about observing and questioning your surroundings, too. Yes, I'm glad you bring that up. Our last guest was Sue Warlin, and I was so interested in the way that she suggested we could expose injustice and create change by exploring smaller things, like we talked about using maps or deconstructing narratives or simply observing the birds around us. I think it fits the idea behind this podcast that so much of our work, finally, comes down to the stories we tell. I might suggest that in whatever way you make meaning of something, whether it was an encounter that happened in a relationship or some dynamic that's happening in your workplace or something, or some movement that's happening socially, is to sort of articulate what that story is. And then ask yourself if there's a different way you could tell the story. And to get there, you might need to ask other people how they understand it and hear their story. But I think that it's good to make explicit what our stories are and also to understand that not everyone sees it the same way and to be willing to risk to see the world differently. Well, I think that we've now reminisced through all of our guests, so that wraps this part up. Thank you, Lauren, for that trip down memory lane. Yeah, and you know, I actually need to go get started editing on our first episode of season two. That's great. I'm going to remind our listeners that as we head into our new season, we're going to carry all of these lessons with us, and we're really excited to have you along for the journey. If you haven't yet already, please subscribe to the Seedfield podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really want to support us, leave us a rating, or maybe even better, share an episode with a friend, classmate, colleague, or student. As I mentioned at the beginning, we'll be linking in our show notes to all of the episodes we excerpted today. 
We post these show notes on our website, theseedfield.org, where you'll also find full episode transcripts, prior episodes, and more. The Seedfield podcast is produced by Antioch University. Our editor is Lauren Instanez. A special thanks to Melissa Badalin, Karen Hamilton, and Melinda Garland. Thank you for spending your time with us today. That's it for this episode. We hope to see you next time. And don't forget to plant a seed, sow a cause, and win a victory for humanity. From Antioch University, this has been the Seedfield Podcast. Podcast.